Does anyone have any questions about things we've already talked about? Yes. Well, um, someone said earlier that I can't. I'm not good at remembering stuff exactly, but something about that sometimes. It, we have teachers who seem disparaging to breath as an object or something like that. And that's not actually not what I've heard. Um, what, I, what, I heard uh, what I've heard some teachers say is that if you spend your whole life meditating on the breath, you won't, you won't end up getting anywhere. Uh, some, something more like that, still I'm not good at, I'm not good at quoting it. Um, but my understanding, which could very well be wrong, and this is my question, is that by focusing on the sensations of the breath, um, and that eventually in the practices you teach it, you're, you're basically looking at the mind. That's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're never really meditating on the breath. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're using the sensations of the breath as a tool. What you're really meditating on is the mind. So that, that's very well put. And so not only if you spent your whole life meditating on the breath, would it be a waste of time? If you even spent any time meditating on the breath as though it had some magical property to it, it would be a waste of time. <laughs> it's, just, it's just something to use. That's very good. But I, I have heard people say things disparaging about breath meditation. And it comes from misunderstanding. They were probably told that by their teacher, who was probably told it by their teacher. And these things get passed down. And if you heard that from your teacher, if you heard it over and over again, you might well repeat it without ever having looked into it more deeply. So that happens. We make allowances for that. Yeah. Um, anything else? We can't hear back here. Oh, you so can't louder. hear back there. Okay. Uh, I'm going to going to talk while Paul adjusts the sound. And you tell me if, if you can hear me now. Is that better? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? How's the sound level now? Sweet, much better. Okay. Oh, good. All right. I do have a soft voice. That's why we have the amplification. So I do want you to hear me. So what we've been talking about the last three days is a practice uh, that, uh, that leads to samatha. 
and it develops over 10 stages. And we talked a fair bit about the techniques involved in the first few stages of the practice, some of the problems and how they can be overcome. And uh, of course there's a limit in how much depth we can go into in something like a, a discussion this weekend. But I will be returning, hopefully at least, I will be returning in February where we'll be doing an extended intensive retreat where uh, any of you that can, if you come, we'll do our best to get you as far advanced along that path as possible, uh, perhaps achieving some time. And one thing about this method is that insight tends to develop spontaneously as a part of it. And that's because you're meditating on the mind, not the ground. And so um, it's also quite possible that in the process of doing this practice, you may just uh, wake up. <laughs> we can always hope. But nevertheless, you know, I, 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 I'm looking forward to working with as many of you as I can in February and March and to bring you as far along that path as I can. So, I'll just, oh, sorry, yes? No, I was just thanking you oh. for coming back. So, um, I thought I'd just briefly tell you a little bit about some of the later stages in the process that I haven't really said so much about before. Um, I talked to you about the first stage, which is establishing a practice, and which I have added to a Sangha's traditional nine, because uh, it's, it's something that lay people uh, have a lot of problem with. And it is, the, these ten stages, each one is easier than the last. And this first one, establishing the practice, is actually the most difficult of all. But once you get it down, everything will start moving. The second stage is where you have um, what you might describe as um, extended continuity of mind wandering. <laughs> Interrupted occasionally by periods of attention to the meditation. <laughs> and so in that stage, your focus is on shortening those periods of mind wandering and extending those periods of attention to the meditation object. In the third stage, the balance between these two has reversed so that you have considerably more time on the meditation object and uh, considerably less time in mind wandering. Periods of mind wandering are short and often there may be forgetting but, but it doesn't lead to mind wandering. And so in the third stage, the main objective is to overcome forgetting. And what this means is that in the fourth stage, you don't lose the meditation object. Or if you do, it happens rarely. And in this fourth stage, your biggest problems are gross distractions and strong dullness. 
And so the fourth stage is about overcoming these two obstacles. And the fourth stage, one of the most important things that you do that helps you to succeed at this is cultivating a continuous introspective awareness so that as this develops, you become aware of gross distraction very quickly so that you can refocus your attention. And then as it develops further, you detect a potential gross distraction before it displaces the meditation object. And then finally you get to the point where the correction is immediate and you never you, you never have the meditation object displaced by a distraction. Likewise, with the dullness, the introspective awareness allows you to become aware that dullness is present. And as you progress and as your introspective awareness becomes more refined, as you learn to recognize the earliest signs of dullness, you identify it more and more quickly, and then you're able to overcome it with very simple remedies very quickly until you finally get to the point where the, the presence of dullness will never progress from being subtle to being strong simply because you'll recognize it as soon as it starts to and you will automatically tighten up your focus on the meditation object and dispel that dullness. The fifth stage the fifth stage is where you overcome subtle dullness. This is very important. It's, it's a crucial stage in the process. And you do this by, well, an important part of it is recognizing subtle dullness, but the antidote to that is to brighten up your perception, your awareness, both peripheral awareness and attention, to strengthen those. And uh, we talked a little bit earlier about using different meditation objects. If, if you're using the breath as a meditation object, what you can do at this stage is you can begin to scan different areas of the body and observe the sensations there, which, because they are not as familiar as the breath, is going to require that your, your mind sharpen up and not descend into a lower energy state. But more than that, what you're going to look for are sensations that change with the breath. These are very subtle sensations. And it requires that not only your mind not be dull, but your mind actually come to a higher energy level so that you can detect the sensations of breath in your toes, your hands, top of your head. And they are there. Um, in the course of this fifth stage, you will, you will completely overcome subtle distraction in the sense that you're always in a state of not subtle distraction, subtle dullness. You're always in a state of subtle dullness. And what's going to happen when you've mastered the fifth stage is when you sit down to meditate, the energy level of the mind, rather than decreasing, is going to increase. The power of your conscious awareness is going to 
is, is not going to decrease, it's much more likely to increase. Maybe if you're really tired, it won't increase that much. But you overcome subtle dullness when there is no increase, there's no decrease below the level of energy that you came to the practice with and there's most likely an increase. This is a very important thing. Once you've done that, once you have overcome subtle dullness and you're ready to move into the sixth stage, you can do something that you've been carefully avoiding up until this point, which is to deliberately try to become single-pointed, to intentionally disregard sensations and thoughts until they disappear. And they will. If you, if you disregard them enough, they'll disappear. You can only do this at the sixth stage because you have trained your mind to completely overcome subtle dullness. If you tried to do it sooner than that, then attempts to become single-pointed are just going to lead to dullness. So that's why, that's why these stages happen in the order they do. It's a natural progression. Skills that are required at one stage allow you to do things at subsequent stages. So having overcome subtle dullness, you are then in a position to work on not completely overcoming, but we use the word subduing, subduing subtle distraction. They will become completely overcome a bit later, but what will happen in the sixth stage is you will learn to achieve and sustain a uh, single-pointed focus. Now, single-pointed does not have anything to do with the size of the object or the scope of attention, because you can have a single-pointed focus on the sensations in your entire body simultaneously. It has nothing to do with the size of the object. It's single-pointed in the sense that you've defined the scope of your attention, whether it's very small or whether it's large. You've defined the scope of attention, and you are ignoring everything other than that so thoroughly that it fades away. So that's what the sixth stage is about. Now, if you think about what the distractions are that you enter the sixth stage with, they're not particularly visual, they're not particularly auditory, they're not particularly sound, they're not smells, they're not taste. They are body sensations, that's the one kind of sensation that is still present, still has the potential to, to enter into your conscious awareness and, and even potentially take your attention away as in a really strong thing. And the other, the most difficult one of all, is, is mental objects. Thoughts, memories, images, emotions. So this is what you enter the sixth stage with. So when you focus your attention on the meditation object, these are the things in the background that are, are competing for your conscious awareness, for your conscious awareness. And one of the techniques that works very well at this stage is to use body sensations, one of the two sources of distraction, to overcome the other source of distraction, which is mental objects produced by the thinking, feeling mind, the discriminating mind. And 
if you use if you are using the breath as a meditation object, and if you have done the body scanning practice in the fifth stage, searching out sensations that change with the breath, then there's a practice that you can do in the sixth stage that is called experiencing the whole body with the breath. If any of you are familiar with the Buddhist sutras, this is something that the Buddha repeated in several of them. That goes, experiencing the whole body while he breathes in, he trains himself. Experiencing the whole body while breathing out, he trains himself. This is uh, the third set of uh, lines in a very famous verse consisting of, of four four lines of instruction. It begins, when he breathes in a long breath, he knows he breathes in a long breath. When he breathes out a long breath, he knows he breathes out a long breath. When he breathes in a short breath, he knows he breathes in a short breath. And when he breathes out a short breath, he knows he breathes out a short breath. This is describing what you accomplish uh, in, in the fourth and fifth stage. Then the next line goes, experiencing the whole body, he breathes in. Thus he trains himself. Experiencing the whole body, he breathes out. Thus he trains himself. And that's talking about this practice here. Which, if you can imagine, to hold the intention to continuously experience the sensations of the breath, not your ordinary run-of-the-mill sensations, but the sensations of the breath, and not just in one area, the tip of the nose, the abdomen, or your left ear, but in the entire body at the same time. It leaves no space in conscious awareness for thoughts, and they fade away. And so what happens in the sixth stage is that discursive thinking falls away, inner self-talk falls away, and even the meditation object itself ceases to be conceptual to the same degree that it was before so that's what the sixth stage is about. You do achieve single-pointed attention at that stage, but there's a lot more interesting things going on at the same time. Then you move to the seventh stage. You have single-pointed attention, but it still requires constant vigilance and correction because if you, if you slack off, if you stop being watchful, the distractions will come back in, and even dullness has the potential to come back in. So you must remain continuously vigilant. That is the problem, or this is the first problem, the main problem in the seventh stage, is that if you slack off, distraction and dullness will return. When that problem is overcome, in other words, when you achieve the goal of the seventh stage, you will have effortless stability of attention. Wherever you put your attention, however you choose to use your mind, it's going to stay there. It's going to be effortless. But initially, if you cease being watchful and if you cease making the effort to correct it, the result is going to be distractions start coming in again, dullness starts to develop. So you have what you do in that stage is you practice uh, sustaining single-pointed attention. 
and uh, it can be a very dry and tedious period. It can also be a very exciting and uh, disturbing period because what allows your mind to sustain attention effortlessly is when all of the different parts of your mind get on track the same pro with the same project at the same time. So that when you formulate the intention to focus on the breath of the nose, for example, you don't have 20 other parts of your mind saying, no, we should do this, or we should do that, or let's think about this, or we have this great project to plan. That's what allows it to be uh, to become effortless. It's a unification of the mind. But the other thing that happens when the mind becomes unified is a certain dramatic changes that take place in, uh, in your perceptions. Uh, and so that's what makes the stage, uh, what can make stage seven exciting, is you're meditating and you're having all kinds of strange sensations or you're hearing, you may be hearing music, it may sound like I'm singing in the distance, or it may just be a buzzing noise. Lights will appear, they'll be different color, they'll float around, they'll flash on and off, or they'll just saturate everything. And it's all very wonderful and exciting. And it's just the side effects of your mind reorganizing the way it functions and getting into this state of unification. But it does make that stage. It does remove some of the tedium of that stage. So the first problem is you just have to keep practicing until no effort is no longer necessary. And that brings you to the second obstacle that must be overcome in the seventh stage, which is learning that you don't have to do that anymore. So uh, if you may are familiar with the classic five problems, uh, the last two problems are what? Doing and not doing, or not doing and doing. Sorry, I got them backwards. Not doing and doing. In the beginning of stage seven, your problem is not doing because if you slack off and don't sustain that vigilance, that introspective awareness, and if you don't make the corrections, you're going to lose the quality of, of attention that you have. But at some point, it's no longer necessary. And you have to discover that point. And at that point, the problem is the problem of doing. Because that vigilance and that effort is keeping your mind from moving to the next stage. And you'll discover that. You can discover that by deliberately ceasing to uh, exert this effort. Or sometimes it'll happen by accident. And you'll just suddenly be there. But that's where you enter into the eighth stage. In the eighth stage, all of this stuff has to mature. All these weird feelings and sounds and lights and everything else matures into uh, it, it's described uh, in the Theravadan tradition, it's described as uh, ascending through five grades of, uh, of piti, of meditative, meditative joy. A lot of the things that happen aren't particularly joyful, but they're all 
but the process is named after the joy, which is its sort of crowning feature and its essential aspect. So you will ascend through these five stages of incomplete and interrupted arising of meditated joy. In the Mahayana tradition, it's described as the development of physical pliancy, which is followed by the uh, bliss of physical pliancy, bliss of mental pliancy. And so this is what's really preoccupying your time in the eighth state. You're practicing getting very good at arriving at that state of effortless concentration and unification of mind, where all of this stuff starts to happen. And continuing to practice through it, which of course at first it's like all this stuff is novel and exciting and agitating and sometimes the joy itself can just make you want to get up and go hug somebody. You have to be able to set that all aside and just keep on practicing till it all comes together. When it all comes together, the physical pliancy, there's a mental pliancy aspect which is actually developed in the seventh stage. But the physical pliancy that happens in the eighth stage when it's fully developed, all those weird, strange sensations, all of the jerking and twitching, salivating, peering, everything else that's been happening, it's going to all quiet down. Your body is going to feel wonderfully still, beautiful, really nice. It is going to be a pleasure that pervades your body. And then your mind is going to enter a state of joy accompanied by a feeling of happiness. It's going to be quite intense. But that's what you work on in the next stage, the ninth stage. The ninth stage is about the development of tranquility. This meditative joy and all the things that go along with it involves a lot of energy. One of the things that you experience is energy movements in your body. Very powerful energy movements. They can move the whole body. They can lift the body off of the cushion. They can be very disturbing. If the energy happens to rise too soon up your spine, it can be, very, it can be disturbing, painful, upsetting in many ways. If there is some obstruction to the free movement of the energy, it can produce intense pain. But when you come to a point where that energy flows freely without obstruction, that's what produces a delightful feeling in the body and the joy arises in the mind. So that's what, that's what you enter into the ninth stage with. But that is so intense that the very intensity of it is a problem. And so that's what you deal with in the ninth state. That intensity subsides. And with the subsiding of that intensity, there arises the tranquility and, and the equanimity, the equanimity of time. Then, when you reach that point, you've achieved top, but the experience that you're going to have is after you sat in meditation for an hour or two or three or whatever it is, It'll be very easy to sit for those periods of time, and you'll be quite inclined to. But after you sat in meditation, when you get up and you go back into your daily life, the attentional stability 
and the uh, mindful awareness and the clarity that goes with that, the joy uh, and the tranquility and the equanimity will start to fade. And as you talk to people, answer the phone, feed the cat, uh, it all starts to gradually go away. But what happens as you continue to practice is that it will take longer and longer for it to go away. Until it comes to be much more of your normal state. You still have to meditate to sustain it. You're not enlightened yet, although this is one of the dangers. It can seem to you like you are. As a matter of fact, it can seem to everybody around you like you must be. And if you think you are, and if they think you are, Everyone's got a problem, because you're not. <laughs> but, and, and that's, you've achieved samatha. The samatha is not the ultimate goal of the practice. That samatha can be sustained. Every time you sit down and meditate, you quickly bring it back up to full strength. But you are, uh, you, if you haven't already achieved awakening, and if you haven't already experienced insight, you are somebody that can do so very easily. You just need to uh, adopt appropriate practices. So that's the 10 stages, and that's what they're about. Any questions about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you said that achieving samatha is not the ultimate goal. Uh, what is the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal is awakening. Enlightenment. Yeah. Let me. Would you like me to say more about that? Okay. You see, the fundamental problem is that we have this innate, intuitive tendency to think, see things in a way that they aren't. Specifically, we believe that we are a separate self with a group of aggregates and when we regard ourselves as a separate self when we divide the universe into self and others the boundary between those two becomes a battleground and desire and aversion desire for pleasure and happiness and aversion for anything that causes pain or threat to the self <coughs> This begins to drive everything. And that's the problem that we have. And the result of that is suffering. Endless suffering. Even when we think we're happy, we're really suffering. We just don't, don't know what it truly means to be happy. So the problem could be summed up by saying that at are deep at the deepest intuitive level at which we perceive the world and ourselves. We're perceiving it incorrectly. That's sometimes called ignorance, but it's really more of a delusion than I mean in English ignorance means you don't know something. I'm ignorant of your neighbor's name over here. I've never met him, it's not on the headline. But it's not that kind of ignorance. It's like I'm sure that the guy next door is named Matt Jones, and you can't convince me otherwise. That's the kind of ignorance. 
So the ignorance is believing that we are a self, that there is one enduring separate self, and that is us. Right? One means, you know, when you examine yourself, it feels like, well, there's just one of me in here. Although, when you examine yourself very closely, you quickly discover that's not true. Even in the second stage of meditation, you're going to start saying, there's, there's too many people in this house, and they can't agree on what we're doing. <laughs> you, start to get, you start to get accused right away. Um, but, nevertheless, we tend to feel as though there's only one of us here. And it's been the same one for as long as I can remember. And I expect it to be the same one for a long time to come. That's the enduring part of it. There's a one enduring and separate self. I mean, I, I'm me and you're you. And I, you know, there's me and then there's the rest of the world. And that's why I'm so engaged with trying to make myself happy and keep things from happening that don't feel good. That's all coming from a very deep, intuitive level. It's creating our view of reality. It leads us to act uh, in very unwholesome ways, and it constantly creates suffering for us. So, what happens in the process of meditation? As I said, as early as the second stage, some of these views, you, you start to confront evidence that if you pay attention to it, if you reflect on it, is pointing you in the direction of the truth. As you go along in the process, you're going to have more and more experiences. Now what's really important is when those experiences arise, that you hold them in your awareness and you let that understanding penetrate from this most superficial level of conscious awareness to that deepest intuitive level of the mind where the problem lies. So as you have experiences that reveal the nature of the mistake. If you have mindful awareness, and if you can recognize what those experiences are showing you, and if you can hold them and let that truth penetrate down, what will happen is at a deep intuitive level, your mind will start working in a different way. And the more that happens, the easier it is to happen. So this is what's described as insight, supramundane insight. You're actually having experiences that present to you information that says very clearly and mistakenly, it's not this way, it's this way. Now, if you, you can have those experiences and not appreciate them. And you can have those experiences and not be able to hold them in your awareness in a way that will allow them to penetrate. But when they penetrate, they begin to change you and it becomes a process, a self-facilitating process. So the first stage of awakening is going to happen when enough information accumulates and enough change has taken place that there is a permanent shift in your perception of reality. Um, we, could, we could describe the fundamental problem as being 
we believe that our self is real, and we believe that the world that we experience around us is real, and that, and that both are just exactly the way they seem to us to be. What those experiences are going to reveal to you is there's going to be more and more cracks in the edifice. You're going to realize more and more that nothing is really the way it appears to be. And that the self that you have always thought you were and felt like you were isn't really what you thought it was. So that, that's what's going to accumulate. Uh, familiar terminology, these things are empty. You're beginning to realize that they're empty. Now, to, to achieve what the Buddha described as the first stage of awakening, there is an irreversible change in your perception. That's why it's called stream entry. You, you, you change, you become a completely new kind of person. You become an Aryan, a noble one. That change is that you are no longer, you no longer believe in the ego construct created by your mind as real. You no longer believe in this personality view that you've carried for all these years that has caused you so much suffering, that causes you to be offended by this and angered by that and crave this. And you see through it. You see through it in a way that, you know, uh, I, I use the example of uh, um, uh, now I forgot. What's the name of Dorothy? Yes, thank you. And, you know the story about Dorothy and, and the tornado and her and Toto get carried out and get together with the woodsman and the straw man and the kid man. We're not in Kansas anymore. What's that? We're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> it's not just a, but, but the point of this is that they go to the great wizard Oz, this powerful and everybody's shaking and quaking because he's so powerful. But then Toto runs up Grabs inside the curtain. Once you're seen behind the curtain, you just can't go back. And that's what this is. You know, uh, you you have entered the path. You've become a noble one when you've seen behind the curtain, and you know that you know this this self that you thought you were. Isn't, isn't really that at all. The emptiness of self. Uh, there also comes a realization of the emptiness of phenomena. The realization that what we see, the way we see things, is a projection of our own mind. It's dependent upon our conditioning. It's dependent upon our karma. And so, any two of us in the same situation are having a totally different experience. As a matter of fact, every one of us in this room is living in a totally different world. Although our worlds do share a lot of things in common, which is kind of convenient. <laughs> so when you realize that, that phenomena and self are, are empty, 
then that's a major, that's a very major breakthrough. Um, the way that this, these understandings come about, there are the three characteristics of existence. The first, we usually call it impermanence. But impermanence just means that everything changes. And I'll bet you everybody in this room already knows that everything changes. So does that mean that you've already experienced the super mundane insight into impermanence? Because impermanence doesn't convey it. I like the way uh, Hui Neng put it. Ultimately, there is no thing. There are no things. It's not that things are impermanent. There are no things. There is only flux. There is only process. So that's that's the first of these characteristics. And your meditation practice will reveal that. It will usually reveal that in the six to seven states in a very profound way. Whether you have the guidance to recognize it or, or whether you're able to recognize it on your own, it will come at that stage. Then, at about the same time, you realize you get a chance to see your mind in the act of projecting reality on this flux. Following the experience of impermanence, you will see your mind creating meaning from nothing, creating a world from nothing. And you'll say, oh, okay, that's what this emptiness is all about. I spent all my time trying to figure it out, and there it is, right in front of me. I see my mind there. The hardest one to come by is the is seeing the emptiness of self. And that is really the that's the culminating thing that moves you from being an ordinary person in the world then, to being uh, one of the noble ones. You're seeing the emptiness of self. But in the course of your meditation, many things will keep pointing that out to you. And if you, if you can see them, and if you can understand them, then at a deep level, you're already starting to realize that the self is empty. What happens if you don't recognize those insights when they're presented to you is that you'll experience the truth of impermanence. You'll experience the truth of emptiness. And you will experience the truth of suffering, which is that clinging to any of this can only cause suffering. And when you discover those things, and you realize there's no ground to stand on, if you still believe in yourself totally, it is a terrible, harrowing experience. It is, it, it, it is, it's, it's called the, uh, it's called the dark night of the soul, it's called the dukkanyanas, the knowledges of suffering. But, if you have, in the process of this, developed an appreciation that that the self, if you've already begun to realize to a certain degree that the self isn't really what it seems to be, then it's going to be a lot easier. This tends to come up around the seventh stage, 
And if you can get not too immersed in it too deeply, by the eighth stage when you have all this joy, or by the ninth stage when you have tranquility and equanimity, this is a breeze to go through. Because you have a mind in a state of joy with tranquility and equanimity, and you can confront any of these truths. So, but what's going to happen is the cumulative effect of this at the deepest level of your mind, you're going to, when we say realize the truth, what's going to happen is your mind's going to change the way it works. It's like your brain becoming rewired. You don't see things the same way anymore. And that's the change. That's like awakening from a dream. Did I say enough more about that? (laughs) Yes? Jesse's first. Did did you have a question, Jesse? Yeah. Um, So, what would be the kinds of things that would help to be able to recognize the um, experiences when you do get to them? Well, the best thing is probably a good intellectual understanding of these things. No matter how good your intellectual understanding is, it's not going to change the way you perceive the world. But if you have a really good intellectual understanding of the three characteristics of emptiness, of no self, you're going to have a mind that is far more likely to recognize what's being presented to it. The other thing that helps a lot is if you take this intellectual understanding and you apply it to your daily experience. If you investigate in the sense that, well, I'm told that this is the way it is, and can I actually see that in what's happening in front of me? Because the more you do that, the more it conditions your mind so that it's going to be much easier to recognize these things. Of course, the other thing that's really good is if you have a teacher who you uh, can work closely with and when you're having these experiences in meditation, they'll, they'll tell you what, they'll, they'll tell you this is important. If, for example, everything dissolves and there's just nothing but vibrations and you don't like it, and so you quit meditating, you go tell your meditation teacher that, well, I don't know, I was doing really great, and then this happened, and I didn't like it, so I quit. Yeah. And then your teacher can explain to you what that's about and suggest to you that you go back and that you look at it in a particular way, and you allow your mind to react the way it's going to react, and you watch that reaction. Because what happens when everything dissolves is your mind jumps back to a perspective where it can make sense of all of this. And that's 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 the act of projecting. So and you can watch that happen. And then when you know what it is, when you don't know what it is, it's terribly disturbing. If you know what it is, then you can say, Oh, let me do that again. And you go back in and everything dissolves and whoop, there it all turned into something meaningful again. Well, let me do that again. And, and that's very easy to do it. So guidance from a teacher can help. Yes. I 
Boy Sao. Um, the, uh, the Bows of Boy Sao. Yeah. The intention is to uh, leave the suffering of all sentient beings. Yeah. Um, other than, certainly not proselytizing, but other than teaching, maybe teaching by your own example, how can you directly affect the suffering of others? Um, certainly I see the possibility of empty, emptiness. Mm -hmm. you know? um, in, with emptiness, you, it becomes um, absolute responsibility. If, if it all coming from you and not at you, what you created is, is, is your responsibility. Um, but what, what, what I, can you elaborate somewhat on, on the, on, from the perspective of a bodhisattva? Okay. Well, first of all, one of the things that you will have some taste of in the beginning and that will become much clearer as you go along. You see, right up until the last stage, you still feel like a separate self. There's that inherent sense of being a separate self. But long before that disappears, there is a, a deepening understanding that this is not true. It may feel that way, but I know it's not true. And and you have you have a taste of this with your with in the in the process of stream entry. So what you realize is that you see our ordinary ways of speaking, such as you just used, to say, "Oh, I'm the bodhisattva, and I can see that all of this is coming from me." That separateness is an illusion. Okay. Um, what can you do as a bodhisattva? Well, you see, every everyone is making their own suffering, including you. And the only way that you can help other sentient beings to stop making their own suffering is to understand how you're doing this to yourself. Because if you understand how you're doing it to yourself, then there's at least a possibility, if they're ready to hear, if they're ready to understand, that you can help them. And as a matter of fact, I think that there's a lot of people that are ready so there's a lot of good work that can be done. That's what, what we're just talking about. This is part of the reason you may have heard it said that there's one kind of bodhicitta that you have before you've achieved the first stage of awakening. It's a different kind of bodhicitta you have afterward. So the kind you have at first is a nice facsimile of bodhicitta, but still holds within it this kernel of belief that you are separate. And what happens when you, even though you still feel separate, 
when you know that that's not true, a totally different kind of bodhicitta becomes possible. Then there's no difference between your enlightenment and the enlightenment of all beings. It's all just one. That's one task. Yeah. I'm not sure the terminology you used, but you referred to three different aspects of emptiness. Or three different um, viewpoints of emptiness. Three characteristics. Can you give us the three characteristics of emptiness? The, the three characteristics are um, in English, impermanence, not self, and suffering. Uh, anicca, anatta, and dukkha in Pali, and uh, very similar in the, in the Sanskrit. Those are the three characteristics. Um, you'll notice that in, in the formulation of the three characteristics, it doesn't specify emptiness. And some people have found this confusing, but you see, um, Impermanence is the fact that things are empty of thingness. And anatta, non-self, is the fact that the self is empty of self. So the emptiness is really there in both of those. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, I struggle with meditation. Um, I mean, all that sounds... I've been studying on and off for 10 years and pretty much off. Um, so I chase life around in my ramshackle way. And, and, uh, but bit by bit, I, I do more practice. And one of the most helpful teachings I've had is to do at least a little bit every day. And I think that you said the hardest part was developing a practice, so to make it happen. But I find myself being incredibly childish about it. Like, I mean, you use the word, word tedious. I don't want to. You know, I, I got things to do. I, you know, and um, yeah, I want I want results nice and quick and fast. Like if I go to North Andover, Mass, I'll I'll get it nailed in but no I, I do understand it and I have a I mean I'd much rather do this intellectually and read books and talk about it than go sit on a pillow quite frankly but I know it doesn't and I know it doesn't work that way and and even people that have been meditating a long time can come out and say it really sucked and sometimes it does and, you know, to get to break through that does take some vigilant effort, I, mm -hmm. I think. And uh, so where am I going with this? I mean, I, um, you know I, know, I know it's not, I mean, this is the problem, this is, at least for me and I think a lot of other people. And, and uh, when, you, when you talk about the mind, I, I tend to think about brain in terms of the rewiring and get it to all playing on the same key. And, and then, you know, going into meditation and having the awarenesses 
and then maybe even reaching stillness, and then maybe even reaching the noble one, you're, you come back out and you're the noble one. But I know that that's nothing. <laughs> and then you can't get hung up on that if you think you're the noble one, or if you think you've just reached samadhi, is it? Uh, so, and that's, that's just a little mind game I'm playing with myself, and I know we have to name it something. And, um, but it seems like even the high lamas or the Dalai Lama, you know, still has to put his robes on one leg at a time or whatever. However you do it. Not having, anyway. Um, that, you know, he, he, he meditates because he's still human. He's, he still has things that I assume that these things come up with him. And he's named the Dalai Lama. And he's a lot of responsibility in that name. And he has to show up in the world as a as this awesome guy. You know? So again, I guess I'm just trying to talk my way out of meditating in terms of <laughs> So what I what I could say about the Dalai Lama is well he he has to meditate and he's the big guy. So what, what makes me think meditate. that I'm special and I, I don't have to meditate in order to have awareness? How do you know he has to meditate? I said assume. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> because he finds it enjoyable. I don't think he had. No, he doesn't. He just doesn't. That, if that's what you mean. But, um, no, it's just it's wonderful to come to teachings like this because not only does it put a a pretty big carrot out there to at least try to develop one's practice, but in some ways to enjoy the ride a little bit and know that it's that it's work. That it, a lot of it is is at least taking the time. And meditating for me with other people is huge. I mean, on a retreat, it's far, far easier for me to. Yes, it is. Doing it by myself and even having a teacher to go to or what, you know, once a week, yeah, that's, you know, that's even better than what I'm doing now, except for more than about 18 seconds, you know, so. But that's okay too, you know, if I just have some sort of practice. Anyway, I'll, I'll be quiet, but that's, that's what my head was going Okay, well, one of the things that you expressed right at the beginning is the fact that there is resistance to practicing, there's procrastination. And if you think about where that's coming from, there's a part of you, or parts of you, a big part of you, that hasn't bought into this theory. So one part of you says, this all sounds good. I'd like to try this meditation thing out. And some other part of you says, now nah, we're better off doing such and such. Would you agree with that? Well, I'd, I'd name that desire. I mean, I, I'm, I'm attached to my suffering. You know. well, so I, I think I do understand that this would be a freedom. In you're, you're only attached to your suffering because you don't really understand what's causing your suffering. I, I doubt if you're intentionally saying, I think I'm going to do this because I'll probably suffer more if I do this than if I do that. But, this is what but you're attached to doing the things and thinking in the way that's causing you to suffer because you really, at some fundamental level, haven't put it together exactly what the suffering is coming from. And 
Likewise, this whole meditation Dharma thing sounds really good, but how do I know it's going to work? And I know what's going to happen if I don't get this done, and I know what the rewards will be if I do do this. So that's pretty stiff competition. Okay, so there's, there's a lot of different points of view there. And, you know, on what you're experiencing, it, it's called, in terms of the five hindrance that I talked about earlier, it is the third of the hindrances, resistance and procrastination, and it's closely related to the fifth hindrance, which is doubt. They, they work together. But we call these hindrances because they get in the way of our meditation practice. As a matter of fact, they get in the way of all kinds of things in our lives. But they exist for a reason. The tendency to, let's call it laziness, the tendency to laziness only exists in human beings because it has provided an enormous example, advantage, not example, an enormous advantage. It keeps us from wasting our time doing things that aren't going to really pay off when we could be doing other things. That's why, you know, so your mind is functioning really well, just the way it was designed to. It's got part of it that says, I'm not convinced this is worth, I don't think the payoff's going to be worth it. So you have resistance to practicing. And the doubt, to the extent that one way or another you come to practice, you've had the experience of, you know, it's not working for me the way that these other people are talking about. I might be different. Maybe it's good for them. But I think there's something different about me. Or... They might just be calming themselves, you know? They want to believe in this, you know. But all these kinds of thoughts, that's doubt. And that, that will contribute to the whole thing. Thank you. So, but these are both very healthy things. Doubt keeps us, doubt keeps us sharp. Without doubt, you know, we'd be taken for a sucker by everybody that came along. So these are really good, valuable characteristics, but they are getting in your way in terms of this. And the only reason they're getting in the way is because, in fact, this will benefit you enormously. The payoff will be much, much better than anything you can conceive of. But somehow or another, you have to come to believe that. More specifically, those parts of yourself that aren't yet convinced, because you wouldn't be here tonight if some part of you wasn't convinced there's something to this. But there are other parts that are not quite. And so that's... Just, just to clarify, I, I do entirely do believe that, that this works and that, say, Lama Christie and Geshe Michael are... Well, I don't know what to call... I don't want to... I hesitate to call them anything. But I... I no, I, I, as you say, I wouldn't be here, mm -hmm. albeit on the third day. Because um, I had other things to do. Um, <laughs> that, no, I, I believe it works, and the, absolutely. I mean, uh, enough to even dive into the all these characters of the past and learn about them. And I thought, well, I can do I can do this without learning about them. 
because, you know, I mean, it was laziness. I agree. And I, I really don't expect to, to really have this nailed down in, in 10 days or anything like that. I just, uh, I just struggle with the practice. But, but really, I have, I have great belief in the, the emptiness of things, at least in terms that are hidden potential, and it's all my problems are indeed opportunities and all that, because they are. I mean, I, I can't argue with that. Or the beginnings of the world, or you know, concepts like that. So, um, it it makes it's it's the highest teaching I've come across, really, mm -hmm. in terms of how things work and how we can deal with being human. Since whenever that, whenever we got put together, because it's been there since the days of Noah. My, but he's a Christian would say, I mean, this is nothing new that we're dealing with. And, uh, well, it may not seem so, like it to you. But I am completely certain that if you were totally convinced, then you wouldn't have any problem practicing. Okay. There's, there's yeah. some, some, there is, there is some reservation. There is some doubt. Oh yeah. There is, you know, and, and that's that's the problem. If you recognize the problem, then you can you can work on that. You can work on overcoming that. Now the reason that I'm here, the reason I started teaching. I'm trying to offer you something that is going to work, and it's going to work quickly. And I started teaching because I, I had no interest in teaching. But people started coming to meditate with me. And they had been trying for so long. People had been to all kinds of retreats, meditating for years, decades. You know, and... I, I could see the problem there. And a lot of, you know, what's amazing, I'm less surprised at somebody who says, ah, well, I, I tried meditation for a while and didn't get very far and quit. I'm not so surprised by that. I'm really surprised by the people that kept on trying year after year, kept going to more and more retreats, and still didn't get anywhere. It was way too much of that. And that's why I'm here. I'm trying to offer you something that if you can persuade yourself completely enough to give it a shot, you are going to have enough success that it's going to create that confidence, that trust, the momentum to keep you going. Um, all I can do is offer it. <laughs> and actually, whether you accept what I have to offer or not, you know, I, I hope that you do, but it's fine with me if you don't. Yeah. Certainly, I, I I really appreciate you being here. You know, and in just just a short time that I've experienced what you teach and you open some doors and, and more. Um, there is a question that comes in my mind because I've experienced it, and we're not talking about direct meditation. We're talking about um, situations where the rubber meets the road. You know, you know. In a matter of priorities, there was a uh, call. Uh, the guy's dying, literally dying, and uh, uh, I called a friend for help to deal with the guy that's dying. Now we're all dying, right? But uh, it's a it's a matter of priorities. I said, well, now now's the time, you, can, you know, I can use a hand. And this, this guy, 
he said to me, well, I can't. Well, why can't you? Well, I have to go meditate. You, you understand? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's a matter of priorities. Certainly, um, it, it is for me, who am I going to tell anybody else? It's important um, for me to have um, cognizance. It, for me, it, it's good to have a practice that I can do every day. And it is a means to an end, right? And it is cognizance and, and, and awareness. But uh, could you comment? Um, I, I, was, um, I was just a bit horrified, you know? Uh, again, where, where the rubber meets the road. I mean, I have to deal with the ant so I don't step on it because I feel for the ant. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't cut my trees now because I cried and, you know, I, I don't want to create the problems for the future. But could, could you, um, could you uh, comment on, on that? Well, I think the situation you've described, there somebody is, is dying or, or in any situation where their need is great. To say, no, I can't, I have to meditate. That's very distorted. To succeed in meditation, it needs to be a priority. It needs to be more important than meeting with your broker. Absolutely. There's right. all kinds of things that it's more important than. I don't have a broker. But if, if your neighbor's child is drowning, it's not more important than that. Right. There's all kinds of things that it's not more important than that. So, you know, uh, I think, you know, I, I can't imagine what was going on in the mind of this person, but... Neither could I. But probably they thought they were doing the right thing. Perhaps they'd been taught something and misconstrued it, misinterpreted it, and, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate. I, I, I hope they get their priorities sorted out a little better than that. And, Thank you. Yeah. Um, first, I just want to start that somebody gave Jesse a book, and I saw the title, so because I respected um, person I bought the book and in, in it the Dalai Lama says that when he was a young boy his tutors made him meditate four times a day two hours a session so that's already eight hours and, and who knows what he does now I haven't read anything where he said about the animal. My question about meditating originally was in April I went to Phoenix for the um, Geshe Michael's course on meditating and they did talk about the nine levels, so that was my first touch with it. So I have my own notes, I have the class notes, I have other people I study with. And then we've had it in some of the classes since then, and then you came and sort of condensed the amount of information, which I'm familiar with now. And basically I just want to know, like someone else asked, when do you know you're going from one level to another? Do you sometimes have tangential things that happen, like it overlaps, maybe you go forward and then you come back again? Do you need a teacher to know what level, and how often should you see the teacher? Is it only when you're feeling questionable about what you're doing? Have you known anybody who's been able to go from one level to the other with just the simplicity of these words? I mean, 
the definition of each subtle growth sense. You can definitely all these different things. Yeah, you can definitely progress through these stages without a teacher. It's it's more difficult, and you can progress through these stages with a teacher that doesn't really know what they're talking about. It's more difficult, <laughs> and those are both not uncommon situations. But obviously, it's going to be easier with a teacher, and I. Uh, Depending on how clear your understanding of it is, you don't necessarily need to see a teacher every day or every week, but there will be things that come up. As you're going through these stages, yes, there's, there's some back and forth. You, you backslide, you, you find yourself moving ahead rapidly, and then there's something that you need, you haven't really done enough work on, and you have to go back and, and work on that. But if you understand the way these stages are defined, then you're going to recognize when there is some weakness in, in your practice that's holding you back, and then you know, well, that's what I need to focus on. Perhaps a teacher would notice that more quickly, but you can, you can notice that yourself. So, um, I'm not sure exactly what your question is. Well, you, you, you said that you studied 28 years with three or four different <coughs> So, if you recognize that you need a teacher, 
are you use whatever whatever the world presents to you, whatever the universe makes available, whatever your karma puts in front of you. Make use of it. Make the best possible use of it you can. You, you've been a really big opening for me, and just the simplest thing you said, like, you're not meditating, because deep down inside of you, that's you said to everybody, you don't really believe. We think we believe, and yet it's true that if we really believe it, we would be right there. And the one thing that's going to make you believe is if you do the practice and if you succeed at it. You know, and there's one thing about the teachings of the Buddha properly applied. They're good in the beginning, they're good in the middle, and they're good in the end. You should be getting something from it all the way along. You know, the best reason for looking for a different teacher is you're not getting what you need. You know? And so uh, it, 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 should, it should be producing results. And the results should build your, your confidence in yourself and your trust in the Dharma. And as your confidence in yourself and your trust in the Dharma grow, it gets easier and easier to practice until at some point you cross a line. You would rather study and meditate than anything else in the world you can think of. And that's that's what it'll bring you to. Then all the doubt is gone, and you know for sure. Uh, you had a question? Yeah, um, this persistent sense of a separate self doesn't pass easily. <laughs> 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 In a lot of, lot of stages of meditation, does it fight for its existence? Is there a resistance there? Is there something we should be aware of among the hallucinations, the moods, the moods? Well, there are, let's be really clear, there are two aspects to this problem. One, is a belief in this conceptual construct of who I think I am, the ego self. And that has to be overcome first. And you can, you can do a lot of work on that. And you can practice as though you didn't believe in that ego self. You will always have an ego. If you cease to have an ego, you'll be locked up in a hospital. Because your ego, although you mistake it for a self, your ego is just a kind of mental construct that is very functional. Its purpose is to keep your laundry separate from other people's, to make sure you get fed, taken care of, stuff like that. You'll always, I hope you always have an ego, but you'll cease to believe in it. And long before you totally cease to believe in it, you can begin to act as though you're not as attached to it as you really are. So that's the one aspect of it. The other is this inherent sense, no matter how hard you try, you cannot get beyond the fact that you feel like you exist as a separate entity. And a lot of that is because it's the way our minds are. 
it's, it's, it's the, the way our minds function. And we have this whole experience, this whole mental experience that seems so totally insulated from everything and everyone else. It's just hard to see beyond that. Somebody who is not yet fully awakened, but is at the uh, third Aryan level, will still have this sense. It is the last thing to go, the sense that you are separate. When that disappears, you become a Buddha. And as a Buddha, everything you do is spontaneous. You, you, have, you are no more in this situation of thinking and conceptualizing and weighing. You just spontaneously do. And you can't, you can't make that happen and you can't fake it. What you can do is you can, you can try to behave as though you are a Buddha. And that's what, that's what practicing the perfections is about. That's what keeping precepts is about. Because as much as you possibly can, pave the way for that to fall away by acting as though it had already fallen away. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. You, you, what, what will happen um, as a part of the experience of awakening um, what's called the cessation, cessation of mental formation, cessation of craving, nirvana. This is something that you experience. And this, uh, when you have this experience, indeed, there is no separate self. It is completely beyond all of that. And so it is because of that, that afterwards, when you feel like a sense of self again, you know something otherwise, but it doesn't change the fact that you should feel like a separate self. The more often you repeat that experience, the stronger and the deeper the conviction is that although I feel like I'm separate, I'm not. Although I feel like I exist as a distinct entity, I know it's not true. And this is, this is a part of the Aryan practice is to repeat that experience as often as you can until eventually it all culminates with the disappearance of that inherent sense of being a separate self. So, uh, until you have the, uh, the experience of cessation, of darsana marga, of margapala, Nirvana, whatever label you want to put on, until you have that experience, not only can you not feel like you're a separate soul, but you can't even imagine what it would be like to not feel that way. Yes? Um, could you talk a little bit about um, if you or the, the, your views on keeping um, a meditation journal, if it's helpful, or <coughs> what are your views on? I, I think that would be a very individual thing. Mm -hmm. There are people for whom journaling is very helpful, but there are a lot of other people that 
it wouldn't be. So it's an individual thing. Um, I think if you are meditating regularly, uh, whether you journal or not, there's going to be this sort of continuity in your practice, you know, and you're going to you're going to be aware of how it's unfolding and there's things that sometimes occur in meditation and at other times don't and they'll stay in your mind. If journaling helps you to make sense of all that, that's great. Ah, somebody back in the back. If a hypothetical person who isn't very far along, as in I have this friend, um, <laughs> would wanted to prepare in a, in a good way, wanted to come to the retreat and wanted to prepare between now and then, um, could you give a little advice on having it not be tomorrow and all of a sudden that was great, but now it's Monday? <laughs> and how to, on how to prepare for yeah, just to, I mean, just retreat. some guidance on what would be obviously meditating every day and following your advice in terms of the instructions that you've given us. But is there any other sort of hints you can give about helping us to get ready so to get the most out of the retreat? That's probably the most valuable thing you could do is, is establish a daily practice and stick to it and, and practice as best you can until then. Yesterday you spoke uh, about the relationship between suffering and pain and shared an equation with us and then talked about how resistance fits into that. And I was wondering, A, for the people that weren't here, if you could do a little review and B, if you did have time, maybe add to that. It seems so profound. Okay, the, the, we were talking about pain yesterday and making the distinction between pain and suffering. I'll give you a little bit of Dharma stuff here. Okay? Uh, one of the five aggregates is vedanas, feeling. And there are three kinds of feeling. There's pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant or unpleasant. Uh, but the Buddha in his teaching further divided that up and said that there are pleasant feelings that are bodily in origin, there are pleasant feelings that are mental in origin, there are painful feelings that are bodily in origin, and then there is suffering that is mental in origin. And then of course there's the neither pleasant nor unpleasant. So. That's a very important distinction between uh, unpleasant feelings that are bodily in origin and unpleasant feelings that are mental in origin. Unpleasant feelings that originate in the body, that's what we call pain. But as we experience it, we don't experience pain by itself. We experience a mental unpleasantness together with it, a suffering. That's called, that's called the physical unpleasantness, pain, and the mental unpleasantness, suffering. Okay? And 
what the Buddha taught was that pain in life is inevitable. You're born. The only way that you're going to escape pain is if you die right now. It's absolutely guaranteed that if you keep on living, you're going to experience pain. But suffering is a totally different story. Buddha said, what I teach is suffering and the end of suffering. He's talking about the mental component of it. The Buddha himself, uh, as you probably know, his cousin Devadatta was very jealous, tried to kill him once by rolling a stone down the hill, hit another rock, broke a sharp fragment, badly lacerated the Buddha's foot, and became infected. There would have been physical pain, but the Buddha would not have suffered. And in his last days, the Buddha, uh, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, recounts how uh, in his last days he suffered from Possibly from the result of food, as a result of food poisoning, but he suffered from a very severe dysentery. So there would have been physical pain in that, but no suffering. The Buddha taught freedom from suffering. That's the mental component of it. And so that's really what we're talking about here. Where does suffering come from? As you may have heard, the cause of suffering is craving. Craving for what? Craving for something to be different than the way it is. The opposite of craving is complete equanimity. Neither grasping to, nor is pushing, nor pushing away. And so, to put this in other terms, the cause of suffering is resistance. When we experience pain, to the degree that we resist it, we compound it enormously by suffering. And this was the, the equation that I mentioned. My friend Shenzhen Young, uh, it originates with him. It's a, beautiful, it's a beautiful expression of this, which is that pain times resistance equals suffering. And the wonderful thing about it is if you can reduce your resistance to zero, there is no suffering. That's what we're talking about in the case of the Buddha. There may be pain. There is no suffering. And so this is this is a wonderful thing to learn. It's, it's at the very core of it. It's um, the, the Buddha taught this as a practice, as the second noble truth. That when you can discover the resistance to what is that lies behind your suffering and let go of it, then there will be no more suffering. So. That's almost too simple to be true. Right? <laughs> and of course, it's, it's very difficult because you see, as long as some part of your mind believes it's a self, it's going to crave something. It's going to crave the end of pain if it doesn't crave some pleasure. And so you are not going to be able to dispense with suffering for more than a moment or a few moments at a time. 
until you've overcome this attachment to belief in self. Once you've overcome that, then you're on the way. Now you can start uprooting desire and aversion, the, the manifestations of craving. And that's the order in which it unfolds. First, you get past this conviction that your ego self is a real thing. Because that is the root from which all desire and aversion are sprouting. Once you've destroyed that root, you're still going to have the mental habits of desire and aversion. But now you can begin to eradicate them. And that is the next step. It's a very straightforward process. What you will discover, quite literally, you will realize that your existence is a constantly shifting series of mental states. You will have been used to seeing them as, oh, there's these good ones, and then there's these bad ones. But it's gonna, at some point it's going to come clear that there is only one truly good mental state. And that's the one that is devoid of desire and aversion. It's devoid of craving. And when that comes clear to you, when that's clear to you, you're now on the second iron path. You will not be, when craving arises, it will not have the same power over you. You are now able to confront craving and the causes of craving and uproot them entirely. And that's, that's the next stage. That means, very simply, that you cease to resist what is. Which doesn't mean that you don't continue to act in the ways that make things better. But you act in ways that make things better with a degree of clarity and skill that it was not possible so long as you were resisting what is. I like telling people about these things. <laughs> well, I've had you sitting here now for an hour and 38 minutes. It's probably only fair to let you have a break and use the washroom. And uh, I invite you to do that and then come back here and we'll, we'll sit together and after, after we meditate together we'll have a few more minutes to, to, to talk. Okay? Um, you know, how to 
how to begin to work on I don't crave it. I mean, maybe I do on some level. <laughs> I don't want no, to think that. What you're doing is you're craving, it's not that you're craving the pain, you're craving the taste. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so. Were you here when I was talking about using pain as a medication? Yes, I was. That's what we need to do. Try mm -hmm. to be objective. Try to stop. Try to. First of all, you have to become aware of your resistance. Try to become aware of your resistance. Resistance to. To the pain. Yeah. It's not something I go in to down. seek. If I was, it was just um, something in my senses that was playing. Yes, stand up. It's very hard to put it into words. 
let's sit together for 45 minutes. And uh, I'll guide you in the first part of it. And I'll let you be the captain of your own ship. It's Cape Anton. <laughs> So make yourself comfortable. <clears throat> Take a deep breath, let it out, relax your body completely. <coughs> and just come fully into the present. Allow yourself to be with any sensations, any sounds. Whatever thoughts may be passing through your mind, let them be there. Don't let them carry you away. So let's just take a few minutes to be fully present. And now preferentially pay attention to sensations in your body, anywhere in your body. Just take a few moments to explore body sensations, letting go of any tension or stress that you may find. your body be supported by the earth, whether sitting on a chair or on a cushion. Feel that contact. Feel the air on your skin. Notice the movements of your body as you breathe. And direct your attention towards those movements. Just explore the sensations of the breath anywhere and everywhere. 
allow yourself to be aware of background noises, even though you're attending to sensations of the breath, you're still aware of all of the other bodily sensations. Now bring your attention to the sensations of the breath of the nose. And follow the sensations. And as you follow those sensations, begin to count. If you can count 10 consecutive breaths without losing attention to the breath. Remember, don't shut anything else out. Just let it all be there.
counted 10 consecutive breaths. Continue to follow the breath, but without counting. Notice in particular the beginning and the end of each in-breath. The pause, the beginning and the end of each out-breath. And the next pause before the in-breath begins again. Expand your attention to include all breath sensations your abdomen, your chest, your nose. And do your best to be simultaneously aware of all these breath sensations at the same time.
And now bring your attention back to a focus at the, at the tip of your nose. Expand your awareness to include your whole body. If you find any tension anywhere, let it go. There are some pleasurable sensations in your body. Observe them. Discover them. The relaxed stillness of your body is one of those sensations. Notice the gentle movements of the breath. You may find that pleasant as well.
as you did before. Try to follow all of the sensations of the breath in the body without losing that sense of pleasantness that you've discovered. <clears throat> this is a gentle process. No striving. direct your attention back to the place where the breath enters and leaves the nose. Without losing your focus, Assess the state of your mind. Are you happy? Content, perhaps? Peaceful? Whatever.
was introduced to Lama Christie's book, mm -hmm. Tibetan Book of Meditation, perhaps you're familiar with. And that was the first time I was introduced to Tong Lin. And I said I'd give this a try. And the first time I tried it, I, I, I got a call. I got a call the next day from someone that I hadn't heard from in a long time. And she said to me, did you come see me last night? This we talking about. I'm up here, you're doing here. Yeah, there was some kind of Buddhist thing. And it just, it just, it blew me away. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that, 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 that experience was, uh, it, it expressed to me how powerful this, this can be. But in it being powerful, should never be, uh, I mean, I don't see how you could ever misuse Tonglen. Um, yeah. You know, you're, um, uh, it's with wisdom and compassion that we fly and, and, and we proceed. Mm -hmm. This is what we should do. Yeah. And actually, it, if, for me, if I've experienced that, if I don't pursue it, that um, I think would turn into a bad karma thing. I mean, would be would become a handicap for me, right? If, if you don't did not pursue, it. if you did not pursue it, right? Yeah, if there's there's a tool that I use for timing a Porsche engine. Yeah. If I threw the tool away, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I'd see it right away. It, it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, I I treasure tools. I appreciate tools, and that it resonates immediately is very special. Mm -hmm. At least, you know, at least to me. Um, so that's my comment. Yeah. And, and it's very good to use tools, but the purpose of Tonglen isn't to make contact with old friends. Oh, not at all. No, <laughs> no, no. It's to it's bodhisattva. Yeah. yeah. It's, to, it's to relieve suffering. Yeah. You know, we're, we're all, we all have, well, I all have pain, and some of us have a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, and uh, if you, if the Buddhist was asked to teach, please teach, please teach, please teach, and he did teach, and you're teaching there, um, it is up to me to take the tools. <coughs> yes, that's true. Thank you. Yes. I have to go, but before I leave, I just wanted to let you know that I don't know what I did to deserve to get you in my life. <laughs> but I, uh, but I, but I hope I do it again. <laughs> We're a little center, but we got a big heart. And I hope you're able to come back besides February, just in case there's some people who aren't able to go. Please always know that you have a home with us, Nancy. I can't thank you enough. I'm sorry I have to go, but I hope you get a good night rest and that you have a good journey back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank all of you. I, I just can't say enough how well we've been cared for here, how comfortable we've been, well fed, well loved, everything. It's just, thank you very much.
Yes. Um, a, a question about, um, I guess it really goes to why we need to do this. And, um, and, and I'm looking at it from a, um, a dilettante student in evolutionary process. Um, and having spent some time with um, a mentor, a spiritual mentor, about um, about parts of our makeup, our mental makeup, that were at one point very useful along the evolutionary <coughs> process, but no longer are all that useful. Fear being one of them, absolute necessity for survival, way back when, um, somewhat useful now, but um, problematic, more than yeah. useful probably, that type of thing. And as I've, I've read some of your background as, a, um, as one who has studied in these matters, uh, or the matters of mind, has evolution stopped, failed? Um, what is it that causes us to be so attached to things which are not particularly productive for us as a as a race at this point, as a, as a, as a species, rather, mm -hmm. at this point? Well, as I was saying earlier, those things that we call hindrances mm -hmm. exist in us because they, they all serve a purpose, they're all beneficial. And that includes worldly desire, and that includes ill will. And so as innate tendencies that we have evolved, they've actually served us well. We are amazingly successful from a biological point of view. We are so successful, it's become a disaster. <laughs> so the way I think of it is that we have, biological evolution has brought us as far as it can. And the next stage of evolution has to be spiritual. And part of that is going beyond this biological programming. It's already served its purpose. But now, as you say, it's problematic. It creates more problems than it, than it solves. And that's, that's exactly the situation that we're in. Our desires and our aversions are what's destroying us as as a species on this on this planet. Just look what we're doing. What, what we're doing to the planet, what we're doing to each other. And where does it all come from? It's it's these tendencies that got us to where we are. But we've reached the point where it's it's only doing harm. So we'll either make it or we won't. <laughs> I hope we do. Whatever will be, will be. <laughs> yeah. One more practical question. Um, I've been experimenting this weekend with where, when, when we're focusing on the tip of our nose, when we're at that point, I've been experimenting with where. Yes. And, and you know, at one point it was up too high, so that as my breath got so fine on the out breath, I couldn't really feel it. So the next sit, I would do something else. This last sit, I, and, and this goes to a question that you talked about on Friday night, 
Um, you talked about how the point of the the point of of our focus might be the size of a pencil eraser, or it might be this. I think you said a two-inch square, and and this less it. I was all in this area, but but it kept switching just a little, just like like a hair's breadth. Mm -hmm. It would move a little bit. Am I actually off my meditation object if I'm moving even slightly? No, I you're not. It's it's all right if it moves and it changes, and it's especially all right if you're aware of it. You know, if it's happening without you being aware of it, then you're missing out on something that you potentially could be aware of, but, but that's fine. Um, if you're not used to meditating on the sensations of the breath of the nose, it might take a little while before you discover absolutely the, the best way to do that. And it's fine if it changes. No need to be too rigid. Yes? From your background in teaching and being involved with professionals, including medical professionals, in the brain and measuring of the brain, um, in these days when there are, well, arguably, um, there's a lot of stress. It's, it's worldwide. We have doors open to the world now, not just locally. So that's not going to go down too soon um, in, in general, but our reaction can't. So the measurement of our relaxation response to talk, we use Harbo Benson's um, beginning of Roshanta, but now when you see and have have heard about groups that go beyond that in terms of the research and presentations so that we can, as a public, be more aware of them, but even more specifically, can you see any group at this point making inroads on being able to measure so that it is inexpensive, it is doable as a diagnostic of progress without having so much dependency on surgery and prescriptions as the progress gets better with meditation. Well, I think we have a long way to go in that area, but there's a lot of there's a lot of really wonderful people doing good work. Uh, some of my students in Tucson are students in the psychology department at U of A which is a department that is very interested in meditation research, both uh, in order to learn more about the mind and the brain, and also in terms of uh, being able to apply these things to helping people. And so a, a number of uh, graduate students in that department are students of mine. I have a great good fortune to talk with them, and uh, and they are, they are very current on what other people are doing, of necessity, I mean, as part of, uh, of their responsibility to be up to date on these things. So I can say there's some very good things happening, but we're still a ways out before we have a lot that's really very usable. But it's coming. Yeah? Um, just out of curiosity, have they tested you? <laughs> no, maybe they should. <laughs> For all the right reasons, I mean. Yeah. But there's been talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, you talked earlier in the day about a book that you're writing. Yeah. Is, is there progress that you can talk about? Like, when is there an actual publication date that you're looking at? Not yet, no. But there is an editor at Wisdom who's very interested but wants me to make it less clinical and more nurturing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm working on. <laughs> so do you, need, do you need, I don't know what they're called, testimonials for, or support for what you know, rather than more feel, you know, touchy-feely? I, I don't know if, I, if testimonials would do any good at, at this point. You know, he was absolutely right. He, he rewrote some of my paragraphs, and I got it. <laughs> I got it. I'm used to, I'm, I'm much more used to writing for academics. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. thank you. meditation I was focusing on the breath and then you know thoughts were arising and the thought that came up well, what's interesting is I could stay on the breath and this thought would come up and it was about craving you know and suffering and I thought well why am I sitting here because the basis of sitting here is because I want something to be different yes so it was about making peace with that, and I mm -hmm. found there was a struggle there. Yeah. And uh, although I was watching the breath, which was funny, because I was like, who's here? There was so much going on, and yet there wasn't that much going on. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm asking, but, but that was the thing about this whole craving and not wanting things to be different. Well, this is the thought that came to your mind was a good and important one. And this is often what happens. You get your mind settled down, you're focused on the meditation object, and then in the periphery of your awareness come some really lovely thoughts, you know, which are worth thinking. You can save them and think them later. But let me talk about this one. Because this is something you, you know, we craving something we want to get over, right? Desire is not good. But what about the desire for enlightenment? Mm -hmm. yeah. What about the desire to succeed in meditation? All these other things. And so, uh, this is a little bit of a limitation of language, and especially translating from one language to another. The word that we translate as craving um, means more literally thirst. And the connotations are a particular kind of compulsion. And so there's a difference between that and an aspiration or a wish. And, and so we don't, you know, it's true you can crave success in meditation and that craving can get in your way. Because to the degree that you crave success in meditation, the one thing you're setting yourself up to be judgmental, self-critical, and possibly disappointed. 
but also the craving itself will tend to get in the way of the process. But you can have the wish and the aspiration, and it's perfectly, totally wholesome. But also, until, until you become uh, a, what's called a non-returner, the, the third stage on the Aryan path, third stage of enlightenment, you are going to have desire and aversion. So don't get the idea that you're going to somehow try to not have those. But what you can do is you can be selective about your desires and your aversions. You can make sure that your desires are the best ones possible. As long as you're going to be a being who desires, desire what's best. Well, it's it's past the official time for ending. Once again, it has been absolutely wonderful. I've enjoyed you, all of your questions. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And yes, I'd be very happy to come back here if you invite me. <laughs>